my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. Music people didn't evolve. We lost 15 years as a business because people were fearful of streaming and what Napster and that was all about. I think we've caught up. We have a long way to go. I think we're just scratching the surface with the value of music and now the power of a brand using musicians and songs. It's very high. I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, we're going to explore marketing in the music business with someone who's seen it all. DJ, indie exec, major music company exec, and back to his own label to do it the way he wants to do it. Last note, entertainment. 
He's a marathoner, lifelong Brooklyn guy, born and raised in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. Loved music and radio. Broadway influenced him, and so did the New York nightclubs of the 1970s. He started as a pre-med student at Brooklyn College, worked as a soda jerk and a short order cook, too. And that wild diversity of experience and long history in music is why we have him with us today. And we want some insights. He was Disco Danny, the DJ at the legendary Regines in New York. And now he is Daniel Glass. Daniel, welcome. Nice to be here. Wow. Someone did the homework. Yeah, well, we had to. We didn't want to disappoint you. We're going to get into the meat of it. But first, we want to do you in 60 seconds. Don't think too long. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Do you prefer Brooklyn or Manhattan? Manhattan. Currently. Currently. Okay, I'll buy that. West Side Story or The King and I? West Side Story. First musical I ever saw. Vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Pat Benatar or Billy Idol? Mm, Billy Idol. Sunrise or Sunsets? Sunrise. Wine or beer? Wine. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. It's about to get harder. Secret talent? Of mine? Yeah. Whoa. Recently, yoga. Oh, that's pretty good. Favorite song? Moon River, Henry Mancini. Book you recommend? Oh, wow. I just read so many books. Rome, A Story in Seven Sackings. Fastest marathon time? 318. Quickest mile on record? I've done a bunch of sixes. Impressive. Favorite concert moment? First one ever was The Who in Allenville at the Neville Hotel, seeing Pete Townsend stick his nose out, and my father took me when I was really, really young to see that. That's my favorite moment. Smartest person you know? Jeff Bezos. Favorite DJ? Frankie Crocker. Childhood hero? Mickey Mantle and Harmon Killebrew. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? To play professional basketball. Is there one food you'd never eat? I would never eat octopus or (laughs) squid or anything like that. Never. No tentacles. We got it. No. Okay. There's a pattern emerging here. (laughs) What topic can you talk about forever? My children and my family. Quote to live by? Do you have one? Uh, Show up. We start today. You have your own company. Glassnote Entertainment, artists like Mumford & Son, Phoenix, Churches, et cetera, et cetera. Rolling Stone even picked Glassnote as the best indie label back in 2011. But let's start back with you as a kid in Brooklyn. How did you get on this path? So I was destined. I was a very good basketball player, but short. I mean, I wasn't the height I am now. I broke my leg for the third time playing basketball at Midwood High School. And my mother said, get a job because I cannot continue to shuttle you back and forth. It's just too much. And as the weather got bad, she said, you've got to find something to do. So I was working as a busboy in the Catskill Mountains. And one day, Bruce Morrow walked in, who was a regular up there, Cousin Brucey. A famous New York famous disc jockey for those New York of you who DJ don't know. WABC. Right? And he brought up to the counter a guy named Barry Mardit. And Barry was with WBCR in Brooklyn. And my job was to get the orders together, the food, and bring them out to people. It was the very, very high end of fast food in the middle of the Catskill Mountains. So this guy, I told him I'm going to Brooklyn College. And he said, you should come up and see us at the radio station. I kept his card. And Cousin Brucey said to me, that's what you should do one day. It must have been a year later. I need something to do. And I contact this guy, Barry Martin. I said, listen, I'm on crutches for the next eight weeks. Could I get a job? I'll do anything, anything. And he said, yeah, come up. So 
by mistake, I filled out an application and became a DJ. I didn't even know what that meant because I was listening to WOR, WNEW, WABC in those days, WMCA. And my elocution, my diction was awful. You're talking about deep Brooklyn accent. So I had to actually learn how to speak properly and enunciate. I get this job and I realize the radio station format is very hippie rock. My sister was older than me and she's listening to hippie rock. So I decide I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to play disco music, R&B and soul music. And my show becomes really, really popular. I go to two days a week and then Manhattan Cable Television picks up my show. And that was it. People in the publishing world heard my show and I got my break when someone reached out to me on my show and made a request and I made the leap with my boss's permission to meet that person. It was a songwriter. And then in my end of my junior year in college, I gave up my major and switched to totally immersing myself in the music industry. So story has it that your first club you visited was Club 82 in New York. Is that right? Yeah. I was 16 years old and my friend said, I got the car this weekend. I'm going to take you a place that's going to blow your mind. Be ready, but you have to dress. And I had to go out and get faded glory jeans and water buffaloes, which were these high heels, cork shoes. And it changed my life because we walked down that stairway and you see pictures of Mick Jagger, David Johansson, New York Dolls. Everyone's in drag. And there's a guy behind the turntables playing seven-inch vinyl named Tony Mansfield. And I was so shocked at this atmosphere, a kid from Brooklyn. All I did was spend time watching him play the music as the DJ. I wanted to do that. And that's what I wound up doing. So there was a lot of talk, or at least there's a lot of talk today about Studio 54, and there was in those days too. But back then, the other club was the sophisticated club, Regines. You had been in Paris, came to New York. How did you become Disco Danny there? Showing up. How old are you at this point? Uh, I graduated at 19, so I'm probably 18 at the time. I'm working as a publisher and a soda jerk. And my boss, who's the songwriter, she said, bring our new record to this club. I know the lady who owns the club. Her name is Regine. I know her from Paris. Bring her the record. So I go there, and the club's opening in two days. And I'm on Park Avenue at 59th Street on the Domonico, and I'm in a cattle call line, and they think I want a job. And nobody really speaks English except one person. They said to me, you wait, you wait, you wait. All I wanted to do is give this to the DJ or the manager, and I did my job and go back to Brooklyn. And instead, they said, please come downstairs. We want to show you the turntables. And I go downstairs, and it's the most beautiful room I'd ever seen in my life. It was Regine's. And they had two Thorns turntables, which I was privileged to work on. And they said, great, we can't invite you for dinner tonight, but here are some meal vouchers to go to Schraft's. And I said, I don't need anything. I'm going to go home. And they said, no, 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 but you should really eat with the other people, but we can't invite you to eat. And the name of the chef was Michel Garrard, who was a, one of the greatest chefs in the world, still alive and in France. So I became opening night DJ and I co-DJ with Jonathan Garvalia. He taught me all about European and South American music. I taught him all about American music. And I was the DJ there for about a year and a half, three to six nights a week at Regine's and got to meet or see or experience Grace Kelly, Elizabeth Taylor, Diane von Furstenberg when she was married to Egon von Furstenberg. It was every night, these type of people. Liz Smith from the Gossip Columns, who just passed away, would call me every couple of weeks 
and I became not a source of gossip, but she wanted to quote me on something. And she started with Disquire Daniel Glass. And I said, that doesn't work. She said, but Disco Danny, I said, that's fine. So I was quoted a bunch of times of who came in and what records I was playing. When I played Sarone for the first time, where Georgia Moroda would give me a record and people and Sheik and before Sheik was even signed, Tom Cossey gave me the copy of Sheik. And uh, that's how I was a DJ in the suit and tie club. So Studio 54 was about the same era. Yes. How do you contrast those two? Well, they had a lot in common. It was a sophistication. The mix of Studio 54 was outrageous and fantastic. I remember the first time hearing about Studio 54, I was at a club called Hurrah in Lincoln Center, and it was the most beautiful club, and that's where the beautiful people went. And there's these two guys running around with business cards, handing out invitations. And they owned a club called Enchanted Gardens, and it was Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager. I was with a model, and I'm dancing with her, and they didn't give me a card. They gave her a card. Please show up. And that was the getting the word out, opening this club, and nobody expected the opening of this to be as important. But the mix, the melange, the, the confluence of cultures that they put together through their door policy was phenomenal. Regines had a barrier of price, so not everybody can get in because bottle service in those days it's probably the same price today. It was hundreds of dollars for a bottle of scotch or whatever you like to drink. 54 was getting in. It wasn't that expensive to get into Studio 54. But each night was a different experience. It was a theme. And Sunday was as good as Thursday. And Saturday was as good as Tuesday. In fact, Saturday was probably the worst night to go to Studio 54. And we wound up there as DJs, as workers. Nightlife people need a release. So where do you go at three when you shut down? And we had our favorites. 12 West was a great club. There was Limelight, there was Gallery, there was Galaxy 21, and Studio 54 was another great place we went to, and that was sort of where we all met after. So why did you leave that? I mean, it sounds like you're in the middle of the hottest, most exciting place to be at this time. So this guy walks up to me, he's about six foot five, six foot six, good looking guy, and he says, Dan, Frank Shields. I said, hi, and he said, I love what you do, can you make me a cassette? I said, yes. And Regine had given us a price. At Regine's, you couldn't just make a cassette for $25, which was a lot of money. She wanted you to charge $75, $100. So I made Frank some cassettes and he said, you got to come see me, young man. He's the number two at Revlon worldwide. And I get to go to this GM building and I go up to Revlon. I meet Charles Revson, who was another customer of Regine's. And they said, listen, Dan, I'm the president of a club at the Sherry Netherland Hotel. And we need a DJ. We need the flavor of Regine's. And I'm going to offer you a contract. I want you to meet the owner of the club. It's called Doubles. And this is a members-only club. We need you to leave, Regines. And I left. And I went to Doubles, and they gave me a contract. Now I'm getting married. And, like, you know, it's hard. You're working, and you're DJing all night, and it's, it's a crazy life. And then I had to subcontract. And my A&R skills in those days, I subcontracted to some of the greatest DJs in the world. I gave Junior Vasquez his first job who went on to produce him, right, for Madonna. Absolutely. Ted Currier, who became a producer, writer. He worked at 99X and with Frankie Crocker. So nobody in New York City knew this. We were making all the mixtapes for WBLS and 99X out of Double's DJ booth. So there was a story that when you were at Regine's, you took a tip, and Regine said <laughs> you took too little. I took either $10 or $20 to play a record, and she was disgusted with me. She said, never, never. I think it was 50 was the minimum or 100. And she said, don't ever do that. She said, we're not that type of club. And I, I mean, for a kid like myself to make 10 or $20 to play a song, I was going to play it anyway. I learned a lot about 
rich people. I learned a lot about people from around the world. And I think the palette I've developed, people always say Glassnote is a very international label. All the taste buds were cultivated there because I was listening to music from Brazil and from Germany and Italy. I've never identified as an American record executive. I have more in common with the UK and Europe than I do as because an American. Because of your experience as a DJ. Yeah, and I think it's the DNA of an American and the culture growing up of an American is completely different. You grow up in America, you have so many fields of influence, interest, and distraction. In the UK, you still are born and bred listening to music. When I came up in the industry in the late 70s and early 80s, I got to witness a lot of black music, a lot of very important soul and disco music. Philadelphia, Washington, Virginia, North Carolina, driving around those areas. Then I got to go to your neck of the woods when I got a little more advanced and went to Mississippi and Georgia. And when release day happened for the new albums or the new singles, people needed to have their Earth, Wind & Fire and their James Brown record. You know, it was just a way of life. You needed your music. And that stopped in America. It's broader now because of streaming and because of what you've done, Bob, making music more accessible for people. But in those days, you had to have your music. And I find that in places like England, music is much more necessary to the way of life, you know, in the order when you put food, video games, film, fashion, gossip, all that stuff. Was there something about worldliness that you got there that you think you still use today? Was there something about exclusivity which you think you use today? Yes. So firstly, the genesis of the club, she figured out what makes the rich tick, how to charge them, how to seat them. What, what makes the rich tick? Well, I think it's a club that travels with each other around the world and also disposes of things very quickly. So you have to keep up, whether it's the Hamptons, whether it's Malibu, whether it's Gestad, it's just a way of knowing how to cater to people. And it's the ability to turn people away. Every business the most powerful word is not yes, it's no. And I think it's great for an artist manager to say no. It's great for a radio station to say too many spots. It's great to say no. And I think that exclusionary policy is what turns people on. It makes you want to go more. Also, two things were going on at Regines in that era. That's when it was truly fun and truly frivolous and open. That stopped like in 81, 82. That's a major portion of New York culture and society, and obviously around the world also. And I think affluence changed. You could not get into a lounge of an airport in those days. You dressed up to go to an airport. Today, everybody flies. Everybody can get into the points and frequent flyer stuff. So affluence has changed. Access has changed. I was witnessing the last of an era of exclusivity of people that traveled together all year round and jet set meant something to them. They all knew each other. And that changed because you had tech people all of a sudden and fashion people and music people making a lot of money. And today's richest of rich are the tech people who are dominating that. And then I'm interested in regimes. They wouldn't be interested in a student 54. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. 
Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. So let's jump a little bit. The late 1970s, you jumped to Sam Records, Sam Weiss's label. He would become your father-in-law. And you started in promotions. I mean, here you are. You knew all about music. You no, but everything. You may have known me or people may know me as promotion, but we had to mix the record, edit the record. I learned how to do business affairs. We did everything. 
So that was good for you to be at a small label to learn it all. Most important thing. Do you think you use that today with your Every own label? Every day. Every day I use it because I'm on top of the business affairs, the deals. I don't enjoy doing them, but I know about it. You have to do budgets. You have to get the publishing business down and understand the copyright of the song, the value of it. I was very talented in the studio and quite proficient, but I didn't enjoy the solitude of the studio, how cold it was, the food, the dysfunctional hours, because I was really mixing a lot and editing a lot. I'd walk out at three o'clock on a Sunday and it would be bright sunshine and I didn't know what time it was. I didn't think that was going to be good for my life. So I stopped doing studio work. Well, you sort of made your name as the promotion person, mm -hmm. sort of managed to make a record happen. Back in the heyday of Indies, and I'll take people back a little bit, before consolidation, Chris Wright, Terry Ellis had an amazing indie, Chrysalis Records. How did you get there? So the man that was running the company was a guy named Jack Crago. He was the president of the company. We had a lot of success at Sam Records. The first two records that we signed that went to Columbia were Gary's Gang and John Davis and the Monster Orchestra. They both went gold. So Columbia Records hired myself and Sam Records to promote and market Santana Records, Barbara Streisand Records, all these disco records they were putting out because we knew what to do in the 12-inch market. Tell people what a 12-inch is. Oh, 12-inch vinyl is one song that has an extended mix extended by time and extended by the vibe and the deep mixes of it. And the biggest personalities in those days were the DJ remixers, Tom Moulton, Tom Savarese, John Luongo, Jelly Bean. I mean, these are the characters, Jim Burgess. They could make or break a record. And if you were smart enough, you saved all yours because they're worth a lot of money today. I still use them. Do you? I still have them. So you go on this promotion track, not A&R. Was it really just the studio that you didn't want to spend all that time late night or was it there is something special about making these songs come to life no i was too good at it i had a passion burning and i had gotten out of the studio where the first couple of records that i loved at chrysalis were spandau ballet ultravox and there was a record by funboy 3 i took the records out of the studio or from the imports and brought them to my friends that i had met over the years particularly frankie crocker at wbls he played them all he broke true by Spandau Ballet. And to have a black DJ breaking UK music that had soul in it, I thought it was just natural. They thought I was a genius because I was getting all these records played. And then I drove to Philadelphia and brought them to WDAS because that's who played all the Sam records. It was all black radio stations. And then I went to WHUR in Washington, D.C. And then all of a sudden KISS came in, WKYS. But I went to basically black radio stations and they loved the music and they played all the music. And that's how we took Spandau Ballet up the charts until KFRC in San Francisco played Spandau Ballet. It would never have gotten out of that. And then it went pop and I knew nothing about promotion. I think the lesson here is the innocence of it was I went in because I believed in the music and I knew real relationships with people that trusted me because I went to the clubs with them, whether it was Studio 54 or the Paradise Garage, we listened to music together a few nights a week. So when I said to them, I think this would work, and then everybody got hip to it, and all of a sudden they're bringing the Clash in, they're bringing R&B, R&B and dance radio are breaking all these cool bands, which was wild, which I guess you would call today alternative music, but it was, uh, it was passion. You went on to the majors. You expanded your role to run labels. You worked with all the big names. Got two or three takeaways from that of somebody today. What lessons did you learn there that you think are relevant to people today that are thinking about music and music marketing? Don't do it. <laughs> Stay <laughs> away. Uh, 
we were bought, merged, or consolidated three or four times in my career, and it was very frustrating. You know, I never wanted to leave Chrysalis. If I could stay with Chris Wright and work my way up to becoming president and CEO and staying there for my entire career, I would have moved to England and have done that. But they sold it to EMI. When we created SBK, it was the most magical independent label in the world. In less than three years to have Vanilla Ice, the Ninja Turtles, Wilson Phillips, Blur, Jesus Jones, the beginnings of Oasis, John Sakata, all on one label in two and a half years. It's unheard of. They sold it. Who did they sell it to? EMI. So twice, I'm under 35 years old, this is happening. And then Doug Morris and I started this label called Rising Tide, and that got folded in and became what is today the great dominant Universal Records. And so many of my colleagues and protégés are still there, and it's thriving. But I was a fish out of water when I had to move into those situations. What didn't you like about it? The human resource drain. If you gave me 90% of my day or week doing A&R and creative and promotion and marketing and artist development, I would be very happy. My job went from 60 to 70 to 80% human resource between budgeting and things that had nothing to do with music. And there are people that do that much better and enjoy that. And I give them a lot of credit. I wasn't cut out for that. I'd rather be with artists and musicians. I've been in the last few days to Copenhagen to see Mumford & Sons. I'll be at Bottle Rock to see the Teskey Brothers this weekend. They can't do that. They would not know the names of the people in the bands the lead singer or the guitarist. They don't know the producer. I need to know that stuff because that's what I love doing. So let's jump to today and the marketing. The total sponsorship business today is about $24 billion, but only about five or six of that is spent against music sponsorship. Sports gets most of it. Two great passion points in America, sports and music. You and I would argue music's Mm -hmm. the biggest passion point. Why do you think marketers are missing the message and not spending more on music as their path to connecting with the consumer. So I think it's catching up when you see valuations of both music companies, publishing companies, but now the value of an iHeart, the value of Spotify, the value of an Apple Music, YouTube Music. You see what telcos value, the music input, how it gets you on a subscription model or a free model. So I think we were undervalued there. I think you had the wrong people talking to the wrong people with relationships. Sports agents and sports marketing was done earlier and more sophisticated and had a lot of expertise representing people. Music people didn't evolve. We lost 15 years as a business because people were fearful of streaming and what Napster and that was all about. So we lost 15 years as a business. We've caught up very nicely. I want to do a quick aside here. In the days that everyone wanted to shut down Napster, you were about the only person in the music industry saying, wait a minute, that's our future. How did that feel to be the lone wolf? And by the way, today, it turns out, of course, you were correct. Yeah, I mean, it was awful because my theory to my bosses were, which restaurant, which club, which scene would you rather go to? The one where there's a few million people now, they are stealing, they are sharing, they are pirating. Yes, I know that. Or would you rather go to the record stores where there were a couple of hundred thousand people? I'd rather be with a few million people were. And that's what my three children were talking about is this new thing. I actually didn't know how to use it. They just kept talking about it. I think we did ourselves a disservice as a business by not going to the table with those early Sean Fanning people and Sean Parker people and negotiating and finding a way to make it work or emulate it legally. Instead, we were clinging onto this life raft called the CD and the cassette, which was foolish because it's going to go on without you anyway. The professionalism of music people was something to be desired. And now 
you have this relationship of great artists, great brands. I was on a plane reading the Financial Times about Rihanna's new line with LVMH, the Fenty line. I mean, that couldn't happen years ago. I remember the first time our business got wind of, you know, Jessica Simpson did some stuff early on with some of the mass marketers. Early marketing. Or you saw vitamin water with baseball players, actresses, and 50 Cent, and you said, wow. And I'm sure Interscope was saying, like, we didn't get a piece of that vitamin water thing. I think you got $100 million for that when they sold for 2 or $3 billion to the uh, soda company. I think we've caught up. We have a long way to go. I think we as a business have always undervalued our perception and our representation of the value of music. And I think what's happened with streaming and what's happened when you do your shows, Bob, in Las Vegas or in Florida, or you do the Jingle Balls, is everybody sees the scope and size and breadth of music and how it influences in the world. Madonna, most recently at Eurovision in Israel, when you see the influence of Indian music, Brazilian music, African music. The most dominant music on YouTube is Latin music. And I think we know more about that right now. So you have more professional representation. You've got more professional branding people. I think we're just scratching the surface with the value of music, of what it could mean. Because all we knew as a business was a soundtrack. And now the power of a brand using musicians and songs, it's very high. Brands often say they want to be part of culture. They want to make culture. How do you think that fits into this? How do they use music to put themselves squarely in the center of culture? Well, the sponsorships of showing up at festivals, shows, you know, you saw years ago when the Rolling Stones had that, I think it was Joe Van, it was pronounced uh, perfume or, or cologne, uh, sponsoring that. And people said, how could they do that? And then Bob Dylan doing, I think it was a Victoria's Secret commercial or something like that. It's, it's the he did, magic. He did one for Chrysler. Yes, it's the match. Phoenix, when they did the 1901, did the Cadillac commercial. It was romantic. It was beautiful, the synergies there. So I think we've unleashed value and we've unleashed creativity. And a really smart brand knows. Look at what Jimmy Iovine and Dre did with the headphones. Athletes and musicians, you identify with them. That marriage of sports, of brands, of music, smart people got together and realize the value of it. Well, you know, you've talked about Phoenix. You've done things with Phoenix. You've done it with Mumford, where you are not afraid to put it in the marketing mix. How do you think about using marketing and other marketers and other brands to help your acts and to give them additional exposure? So we're probably one of the purest companies when it comes to the use of our artists or music. We filtered out a lot of requests. We turned down probably 97% of requests where I would say a major label would probably accept 60 to 80% and ask the artist to do it. First of all, most of our artists write their own music. That separates us from, I would say, you know, most of the record business who are getting other songwriters to come in. So our self-contained artists have a lot of authenticity and a lot of integrity. So when they do decide to do a film or to do a concert or to do something with a brand, it's been very, very well thought about and they actually work with the brand to make it work for their lifestyle and the road that they want to travel, which is why we're a difficult company to deal with. But when you do get us to do something, it comes out great. Authenticity. It's authenticity and it's purity. I think it's better for the brand. So let's jump to a topic near and dear to my heart, yours too, radio. It's been at the heart of what you do, what I do. It's certainly at the heart of music marketing and always has been, still is today. 80% of consumers and even 80% of Spotify users say the main way they discover new music is 
FM radio. In the days of the LPs, consumers heard a song on the radio, heard the DJ talk about it, and went out and bought it. Today they hear it, they stream it. Things really haven't changed that much. What is radio, and why is it so central to all types of music marketing? How do you use it? It's such a personal medium. I look at radio as being a friend, as being your warm hug that you get. The answer, if you ask 100 record executives, music executives, writers, producers, artists, 97 out of 100 will say to you, the first time I heard my song on the radio. You listen to Rolling Stone documentaries. They talk about the radio. You know, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's an adjective, but it's personality. It's your friend. It is something that greets you in the morning. My alarm clock, not because I'm here with you, Bob, is Z100. Because it's Elvis Graham would be very happy well, to hear you Well, it's a level that. of talent on the air because it's evolved since the Z Morning Zoo started and I grew up with this radio station with my kids. But it's the level of talent and preparation, the work. I know that I'm getting a very expensive product this is not a casual bunch of people. These are highly trained people who were sleeping when you were partying last night, preparing for a great show. They're entertainers. They're passionate about the music. They front and back announce a record. You have to get that. You hear the saliva coming out of there. You hear the disappointment. You hear the frustration. You hear all kinds of stories about sports, weather, news, tragedy, miracles, elections, in context with great music and great rotation. So the endorsement, of a radio station, the support that plays it a lot means that there's something going on. I can't think of how to break an artist or a record without radio in tandem with streaming. I think streaming is very key as an early indicator or a late indicator, but you must have radio. You know, it's very rare that you get to Madison Square Garden or the headlining of a festival, whether it's Lollapalooza or Glastonbury, without radio. I'll give you a scene in Copenhagen. I went to a restaurant that blew my mind. My wife and I really push ourselves culturally to do great things. So before we went to see Mumford & Sons in Copenhagen, Thursday night, we got to go to Noma. How could you get in? Because somebody heard me on an interview once and was inspired. One of the co-owners and managers heard it and invited me a year ago. You're very lucky. So I'm very lucky. And I pinch myself. We get to Noma and we're clicking. There are 24 different chefs working there, 24 different nationalities helping us. And this one guy comes over. I said, where are you from? He says, hey, mate, I'm from Australia. And I start rattling off my successes. I've got my early days of Ice House and Johnny Diesel on the Divinals. Then I hit him with Mansion Air, the Temper Trap, Flight Facilities, the Teskey Brothers. It's blank. Nothing going on. My wife said, wow, that was like cold. I'm on the way to the men's room. And I said, my wife thinks you're a hip hop head. He said, I am. I said, well, you know, we broke Childish Gambino. Oh, now you're talking. He said, I'm getting married. I'm going to march down the aisle to sew into you. And he has the wrong artist. And I said, no, that was Tamia. And he did it on Triple J Radio. He comes back to the table and he said, you're right. It was Triple J Radio where I first heard that song. So it was radio connecting us at this moment of a song that he did as a cover song when he was in Australia. And that was a big moment. So again, radio came up. The lady that served us our coffee, where are you from? She said, I'm from Kent. I said, Kent, England. I said, we just signed Mosa Wild. She said, you did? I heard them on the radio. So this is a meal in Copenhagen. And I'm dealing with an Australian about radio and a UK person about radio. The connection. Someone said to me the other day, interviewed me as a college kid, what was the turning point of Glassnote? When did you know? Because my whole conversation with him was the fear of going out of business. 
that fear of getting up on Monday morning or Friday nights, whatever it was, and thinking we couldn't stay in business. And I still have that fear, by the way, Bob. I'm sure you do too. Every entrepreneur, every owner goes through it daily, and it's a great anxiety, and I love living on the edge like that. So my moment of exhale, my moment of validation was a phone call from Z100 that we're adding. The first record we ever released was Fall For You by Secondhand Serenade. I was driving on the North Fork thinking, we're going out of business. And that phone call came in, and I realized we're here to stay. That's a real story. So let's go here to stay. The music collection has clearly moved to streaming and subscription, but not all the way. There's still CDs out there. Actually, the funny thing is more people listen to the CD in the car than they do their streaming service. Will CDs survive in a diminished role, or does it go away like eight-track tapes? The problem is cars. I have a car, and one of the reasons I do not trade it in, because I have a CD player, and the team at Glassnote makes me, I do homework every weekend, and it's a CD without knowing who the lawyer, the agent, the manager, the producer is, and I put it on repeat, and I listen to music. Maybe I'm old-fashioned that way. I think the CD is going to subside like the download stores and go away. I think vinyl will not go away. Vinyl is fine. The country music scene of CDs is doing well. I just got back from Germany about a month ago, and if it's the first time I've seen a softening of that physical market. Japan is about to turn, I think, into a streaming market. What percentage of glass notice physical copy? Oh, probably 15% now. Oh, and as the hits get bigger, lower. Lower and lower. Many records, we never put anything physical out. Never. So all marketers love their product to be the thing. I was fortunate enough to hit it with the gang at MTV in the 80s, AOL in the mid-90s, Google and Facebook have been it, iHeart is it with radio. But you do it again and again. Every time you build a new hit, it's the thing for a period of time. Brands would like to know, how do you do that? Well, you have to do less than more and not just put you know Frisbees and plates up in the air. Here's an example. We're breaking an artist now, or helping break an artist around the world named Jade Bird. And her manager had come to me four or five times in the last few years and we just didn't feel that we'd be the right home for his artists. And he's a very, very important manager. He's got hits with Tom O'Dell, and he's got hits with Liam Gallagher and Plan B and Jess Glynn, and this is an A-plus manager. But we heard something in Jade Bird, a UK artist. We heard some music that we thought we could really take to the top, particularly in North America, but also in other markets like Germany and Australia and, and Scandinavia. The second thing is we met her, and you meet her, I was not there at the beginning when Scott Borchetta met Taylor Swift. I was not there when the Atlantic people met Ed Sheeran. But this is the same drive, that same crazy ambition, that eye of the tiger. It makes life really better when someone works harder than you and they're driven as Elton John was or Mick Jagger was or John Lennon or Prince or you know John Legend. These artists are different. They're just different. Those two factors, her talent and her ambition came in. So for a marketer, I would say... To you, if you're getting behind something, believe in it, believe it has longevity, it has authenticity, and it will stand the bad weather. I know there's going to be cloudy and rainy days in Jade Bird's career. We all have them. But her talent will rise to the top as a Casey Musgraves did, as a Brandy Carlisle did, as Ed Sheeran did. So I'm with her to go all the way around the world. If we're going to be listening to this podcast in two years, you're talking about a superstar that will be headlining all over the world on festival stages and arenas. It's going to happen for her because she has 230 songs in her arsenal that have never been heard. And she has that thing that Adele had. 
she's different because it's Americana, folky rock music coming out and like of a 21 year old, but she's from England. But people said we'd never get the banjo and the kick drum played by Mumford and Sons. By the way, a banjo on Z100? Yeah. Who would have imagined? Right. So I think for a brand to take a lesson from this is when something is different, but it has to be real, it has to be quality, it has to transcend. Those are the brands that I would get behind. And I do social science research every day of my life. It's my ability to walk into a radio station or a restaurant or a clothing store and sniff it out and say, that is the place to be. I had that feeling at Noma Thursday night, just getting out of the car, the way we were greeted. You knew you were in somewhere special. Those are the products you get behind. And that's why I think there are dominant executives around the world at the LVMHs and the Kerings and the iHearts that buy the best of the best of the best. You have to be able to walk away from a B. And in this era, I'd walk away. I didn't say this 10 years ago. I think you need to walk away from an A-. minus. They don't stream. They don't make it anymore. What I learned when I turned 30 or 35 was you cannot fix it in the mix. You can't fix a marriage. You can't fix a movie. It's not on the cutting floor. It just isn't. As I get older, I think people try to fix things. You know, there's expressions. Remix it. Master it differently. Edit it differently. You can't. The story's not there. The essence is not there. The emotion's not there. We tend to glamorize and romanticize A minuses and B pluses to make them better than they are. They're not. Some things are better than others. That's it. That's it. And the more we admit that, because you spend as much money on an A minus, and today there's less return. We had a business in the 80s. It was an expression we used to ship records gold and return platinum, or vice versa. We could put them in the windows. We could you know, kind of game it. Yeah, but you can't do that anymore. Work harder. Work harder for A's and A pluses. So we end each episode by going back to math and magic. So in your experience, you've seen a lot of people. Who's the best mathematician you know, that best analytical person you've met in your career? So everything in my life has happened by showing up. Sofia Coppola is married to the lead singer of Phoenix. And Sophia and Thomas invited us to the opening at Lincoln Center of a show called Mozart in the Jungle. So I showed up. We went into the wrong room. And who's there? Jeff Bezos. He funded this show and he, he's there. And I start talking to him. He's asking me about music marketing. Very similar to you. He sounds very much like you. Do you know him well? I do know. Jim. Okay. You remind me of him and, and vice versa. I got so much out of that conversation of what he was about to do in music. And now that I've gotten to know his head of music, Steve Boom, they are so good at what they do in data, in analytics, in math, catering and learning about the customer. I know I have iHeart through my Alexa. So we buy an Alexa for my mother-in-law, who's not a child, and she's living in Florida, and she has her Alexa, and she starts Sinatra, or this one, that one. She's now getting solicited through her Alexa on concerts, appearances, and she said, I'd love to have tickets for this. She orders her cars. So he's figured out my mother-in-law. He's figured out my wife, by the way. So he's the mathematician. He's a genius. So who's the greatest magician you've known? That show person that has that just sixth sense of how to make everything exciting. The Glass family were huge fans of everything Kanye West. A magician is maybe a disrespectful word for him. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. Good. Okay. So I met him. I founded an organization called Lifebeat many years ago with Bob Caviano, who's unfortunately passed away. I got to meet him then. And then uh, 
he donated a Vespa through a, a radio station promotion we did. His touching fashion and culture, I love following him. And not a coincidence, not irony, but he marries into this family that is genius. You call them magicians. The Chris Jenna DNA tree is unbelievable. They're billionaires in that tree with Kylie and all the Kardashians and the Jenners. So again, you may think that's superficial, but I'm fascinated with their ability to grab the imagination of people. That's not a 15 minutes of fame. That's something else. I love it today. We've gone Jeff Bezos all the way to Kanye West, <laughs> mathematician, magician, Daniel. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.